I think like artists are the smugglers in our culture of like reminding our culture of like, hey, we are in a story and everything you're taking in is actually pointing to God. Even if you're watching like a horror movie, like there's some echo of the gospel in there of like all the stories we, we are telling are the gospel story. And even in our daily lives, we're living out the gospel story. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Melanie Penn is a singer-songwriter with a background in musical theater. Through the pandemic, she produced and released 20 new pop singles. Those singles have been bundled up into two new albums, More Alive Volume 1 and More Alive Volume 2. Melanie Penn, I'm so glad to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so this you have recently released two albums, More Alive Volume One, More Alive Volume Two, uh, which are a bundling of singles you've been releasing since COVID started. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. So all together in the COVID era, I released 20 songs and they're evenly divided up into two albums. And it really represents, kind of represents the whole COVID experience. Like there's a lot of lament in volume one and volume two. I think there's a lot of themes of like re-entry and re-emergence and courage. Mm -hmm. And so when we look back on those albums or when I look back on them, I hope that they are a little bit of a time capsule of this mm -hmm. whole crazy time. Yeah. Yeah. So More Alive is the title track of these two albums. And I love the idea behind that song, that every day you become more alive. You know, kind of a we, we think of, you know, you're marching toward death and therefore you're becoming you're getting closer to death right. with every with every day. And and you say, no, it's actually the reverse. Every day we we get more alive. We tell me more about that that idea and, and kind of how that shapes. Well, you nailed it. I mean, that's exactly. <laughs> I'm I'm really. I've always been very interested in time and uh -huh. the concept of time, and pair that with the urgency I've always felt to like make something of myself by a certain age and like get mm -hmm. to the top and kind of like you know, are, are we, are we really racing against the clock here on earth to get mm -hmm. things done? And I think that as Christians, we can let go of those fears and urgencies because if it's true that we have an eternal life and that eternal life has already started, mm -hmm. that actually means that the urgency goes away. In some things, not in everything, but in some things it goes away. So like when I look at my career or things that I want to accomplish and I am able to look at them, it's like, oh, I actually have forever. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, oh, I, I you know, I want to make 50 new albums before I die. Well, maybe death actually isn't the timeline. I'm going to be making albums forever and ever. Mm. And so... That means if I'm marching actually toward more eternity and not death, <laughs> that means I'm getting more alive every day, not less. And 
that helps me on many levels. It helps me career wise. It helps me as I get older and like helps me, helps me with my vanity, you know, as I see myself <laughs> aging, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, Hey, I'm getting more alive. This is something to celebrate. Yeah. So that's really where the song came from. Well, I, I love the reminder. Um, and I had not, uh, it, it just now occurred to me that this is a song that you are uh, writing in the midst of, probably in the midst of COVID lockdown, probably as you feel like your life shrinking because you were in New York City. I mean, it's, it's that's a, you know, compared to some of the lockdowns the rest of us knew that you, you had yeah, a lot more I mean, going on. Than- more Live was done before COVID. Okay. So it actually ended up being a bit of a prof- prophetic song. Mm-hmm. So the song was finished before COVID, but it hadn't come out yet. And so when it did come out, oh, you know what? It actually was released. It might have come out February or March of 2020, like just mm. before Shelter in Place. It's all blurry mm. to me now. But yeah, it was the first song to kind of kick off the song collection. And then really, really the song and the whole project for a while was a bit dissonant with what we were hearing in the world because mm. the world was quaking and a lot of fear and telling us you're right telling us to shrink and i had written all these songs that i was ready to put out that was telling us to like become more (laughs) and so i had to kind of live live with that tension and message things well Mm. um you know you can never predict what the world's going to do that's right you so some of these songs were these 20 songs some were written before covid and some were written during yeah, I, I would say a few, just a handful were written before COVID. Okay. And then my producer in Nashville, um, we worked a lot during COVID. And, mm-hmm. you know, at, at some being, point. About ben Shive? Yes. At some point, Ben was like, like, I, I started writing a lot during COVID and kind of sending him my little voice memos. And we would get on Zoom and kind of listen to the songs together and talk about them. And at some point he was like, Hey, I think you're on a roll. Like, why don't, why don't you just get down here and like, let's work as much as we can. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I came to Nashville, you know, spent a lot of 2020 here in Nashville and Ben and I were able to work really by ourselves because the options had always been there to record albums remotely. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was something that was capitalized upon the way it was in 2020. Mm-hmm. So Ben and I could sit in the studio and like have sessions with guitar players who were like in California, like live sessions. And really? we were able to like put a lot of great tracks together. We did mm-hmm. a lot of good work. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I look back on it. I'm kind of stunned actually that we, mm-hmm. we pulled it off, but it was yeah, great. That's, that's neat. And Case and Cooley was in, I saw he wrote, had writing credits on a lot of the, the songs. Yes, and he was involved. He was uh, involved in recording, like the batch of songs that was done before COVID, that was ready to come out in twenty. 20- it was like we had them done, and we were getting ready to release them in twenty twenty, and then COVID happened. But Kaysen was involved in that pre COVID era of finishing gotcha. some of those songs, and he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well. Uh, when we were talking or exchanging emails before this conversation about things we might want to talk about, one thing that you proposed was the idea of making work during seasons of transition, which, of course, mm-hmm. a lot of transition going on. 
um, mm-hmm. as, as these songs were getting made. Um, and, and you said, what is the process of making during seasons of traumatic or catalytic change? Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear more about, about that. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me about creativity and, and making things during traumatic yeah. catalytic change. Yeah. I, we emailed about that and I realized I'm kind of in process, like still putting together my thoughts on it as I probably will forever be. <laughs> um, do you, did you ever see the um, Mr. Rogers movie yeah. documentary about his life? Yeah. And you know that it, there's a little clip of him playing the piano and he was like going through key changes and he was like, how you get to the new key as you're playing piano is about the transitions, the chords you have to play to get to the new key. He was I vaguely like, remember that, but I don't know enough about music to understand what he meant. He, he basically was like, to get to it, you, all, you, you can know you need to get to a, musical, a new musical place, but you can't just jump there. You have to get the listener there. You have to play mm-hmm. the right chords to get there. And he said, Like, sometimes I feel like my work is helping people get to the new place, Mm. like get to those transitions. And he was talking about kids, like as they're growing up, you know, like, how can I, how can I be that connective tissue as people are getting to a new place? And I thought it was such a beautiful way to describe really what artists do, because the world can tell you like, uh, okay, well, well now, whatever it is, like, well, now you now you get married or now you have kids, you know, now you, now you move to a new place. Now you this, but who's giving the how, like who's, who's helping guide through the transitions. And sometimes I think that's what artists do. That's the artist's role. And it might, we might not know that that's what artists are doing, but that is what artists are doing. It's like the songs and the books and the like visuals that come, the TV shows, like the things Mm -hmm. that come alongside you during those transitions that help you feel a little better or a little less lost Hmm. that that's the, that's the work of the artist. So it's like, well, how do artists make that work to help other people through transitions by making in our own transitions? So it's weird. It's like functional, you know, it's like you're helping yourself. Like the artist, when I make, when I make work during a catalytic transition, it's very painful, Mm -hmm. but it's helping me get through my transition. And I think on the other end, it's functional for the listener, reader, you know, viewer, whoever it is through their transitions. So how do you resist the temptation to say, I'm going through a transition right now. I'm moving or I, you know, I'm mourning or I'm, yeah, you know, locked down. <laughs> The temptation, yeah. I mean, my temptation in those situations is saying, yeah, I got a lot going on. So maybe I'll not write. Time out. Yeah. Um, I think just, I, I know exactly what you're saying, especially because transitions are exhausting. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to work when you're exhausted, right? Yeah. So I think just being intentional about continuing to make work. Sometimes when I'm in a transition that's overwhelming, I will go on a walk (laughs) (laughs) 
or set a, or set a timer for 15 minutes and work in smaller sections. So that's what, what I mean by that is, and I don't know if writers like um, non-musical writers are this way, but sometimes when I need to sit down and write a song, quote unquote, the idea is too overwhelming, especially in seasons of change. But what I can do is go on a walk. So mm-hmm. I'll go on a walk with no technology and something about the rhythm of walking helps me then get ideas like melodies will come. It like opens my mind. The second, It's like the secondary activity yeah. of thinking of a melody, thinking of turns of phrases. And I find that by the end of a walk, I've written something in my mind, like, and then I can like, you know, sing it into my phone or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and then also I think setting a timer is really important. You can actually get a lot of work done in 15 minutes and that's, also a very non-overwhelming thing to do. So when life is overwhelming in terms of, it's like set the timer, sit down at the computer and you'll probably be there for an hour, but you don't set out to be there for an hour, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Once you, Sitting there for 15 minutes seems doable. And then by the time you've sat there for 15 minutes, you can, you can keep sitting there. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I call I, it, it running almost, to the next telephone pole. You know, like when when, when you go running, yes. if the question is, can I run four miles? The answer may be no. But if the question is, can I run to the next telephone pole? The answer is probably yes. That's and then exactly you can probably right. run to the next telephone pole after that. And That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right. I've used that before. And, you know, there was a time in New York where I was going through a lot. And even walking down, I remember this so clearly, even walking down the street was hard for me. I was so, I was just like, I, I was kind of an emotionally not a great place. But in New York, the sidewalks have seams. So you can literally walk the whole way you're going on sidewalks, sections of the sidewalk. So I was like, Melanie, you can get to the next sidewalk scene. Just break it down into the smallest bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that I think that time taught me how to break things into small chunks. Hmm. Literally that walk down the sidewalk or, or yes. Yes. Yeah. Cause it works before you know it, you have like walked a couple of miles and then you're back home. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, the, I, I want to ask with regard to times of trauma, times of change, times of, of, you know, as you said, catalytic change. Um, can we draw some connections between that and this overarching theme for these these two records of becoming more alive? Right. I mean, times of trauma doesn't feel like a time of coming more alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and yet you're you are talking about bringing life out of difficulty and trouble and bringing life to other people who are in difficulty yes. and trouble. Just like thoughts. I mean, I mean, at a certain point, at a certain point in life, we can always look back at our heartaches and periods of grief and see what came out of it. Mm-hmm. Some of that is the blessing of experience. Like you look back and you're like, wow, that felt like I was getting pummeled by life. But then look what it did. Uh It's like, then this door opened or I made this decision or I had to like turn around, like do a 180 (laughs) and (laughs) go somewhere else and it ended up being amazing. So 
some that actually is a lot of the more alive concept because it's like the more experience you have the better you are at coping when those times come you're like okay i've been here before yeah i know god won't leave me here i know there's good on the other side of this so what i need to do is endure and be aware yeah and so i think i think when you're young you don't always have have that you know benefit of experience but i think the older we get yeah the more we become more alive there we go there's the hook <laughs> um in this most recent uh collection the the volume two you have a song called the story that i think is maybe relevant here you're talking about I mean, the, the story that song is about trusting the author of the story mm-hmm. um and, or as you say, he's the author of an adventure that I'm glad I'm in. Um, yes. And it's not always easy to be excited about being in in the story um, when you're in the part of the story that's scary or mysterious yes. or or whatever. Um, and uh, and then it's you know another line from the same song. Um, I trust the storyteller um, with even. With even what's between the lines. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I, I've, you know, as you can imagine, as a as a writer, that song caught my attention. As you apply the the principles of storytelling uh, to that truth that you know that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, he, that that God is telling a story through Christ and us. And that we're part of a of a larger story. Um, so, I mean, as you said, as we as we live into the story, we learn to trust the storyteller a little yes. bit more, which is easier for people who are a little older than it is for people who are a little younger, perhaps. So, I stole the idea for the story from N.T. Wright because N.T. Wright says this thing, um, like the history of the world is in five acts. It's almost like it's a, we're in a story in five acts and we're in the fifth act, mm. but we have been given enough information that we know how it will end. Yeah. We don't necessarily know like the plot twists in the fifth act, but right. the, the previous four acts gave us a lot of context, right? <laughs> yeah. And then the writer, and he says, and the writer has put himself in the story. Mm as yeah. a character. Yeah. So I've always loved that. And it, to me, it's like, oh man, it says all the things. Like it says the things, it, it satisfies everybody. Like it satisfies the Arminians and like the <laughs> Protestant Calvinists. It's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's, that's the whole deal. And I have loved thinking about like, we, we are in a story. There's good and evil. There's like heroes and villains. And there's like the, the lover, <laughs> the lovers being reunited. Yeah. And and the orphan being given a home, you said. And that, the orphan gets a home. Yeah. Jerry Root, who's a CS he is a CS Lewis scholar and he he talks about going to um talk about CS Lewis to all these Disney staffers when okay. Disney was doing Chronicles of Narnia. Huh, okay. And he talks he he said he said 
Turns out there's all these Christians who work at Disney and who have been writing the scripts at Disney over time. Mm-hmm. And apparently in the Jungle Book cartoon, which I've never seen, the first one, there's a line that says, um, you know, greater love, hath n- greater love ha- has none than this, that a man gives up his life for his friend. That that's in the Jungle Book. Really? And Jerry Root apparently asked these Disney guys, like, how did that get into the Jungle Book script, mm-hmm. that line? And the writer said to him, like, oh, we've been smuggling in, we've been smuggling in the gospel for years. <laughs> it's like, oh, we've been doing this for years. Okay, so here's where this ties in. I think, like, artists are the smugglers in our culture of, like, reminding our culture, of, like, hey, we are in a story and everything you're taking in is actually pointing to God. Mm-hmm. Even if you're watching, like, a horror movie, like, there's some echo of the gospel in there of like all the stories we we are telling are the gospel story. And Mm -hmm. even in our daily lives, we're living out the gospel story. Was that too circular? No. Sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, one, one line that I found especially interesting in that song is uh, you said that the author leaves a little mystery, wouldn't overly describe. Yeah. And it seems like you're hinting at, you know, the old, you know, show, don't tell. Yeah. That's not, you know, that, that the storyteller, he follows that rule too. He, he does more showing. Yes, than that's telling, right. Right. That's right. And, and so we, we take in, um, you know, we, we, we take in experience um, that is shown to us. Uh, yes. But there's not a narrator saying, and now dear reader, here's what all this means. Right. I mean, that's exactly it. And I think sometimes in our lives, I wrote that line specifically because I think sometimes in our lives, we want all the intel. Like, yeah. what's going to happen? Where's it going to go? Like, how even how is my day going to end up? Mm-hmm. And we forget that we're in an exciting story. And the mm-hmm. most exciting stories don't give away all the details. Yeah. So it's like, the story's we over when you have all the information. Yes, it becomes boring. So it's yeah. like, who wants, who wants to read a story where it's like overly described? It's like, oh my gosh. So I think when, when we can understand our lives are exciting, not overly described stories, it brings us back to like, I'm present in my day. I don't know what the next second will bring. Um, but I, but I, I can trust the storyteller, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love the way that, um, all the things we know about storytelling become relevant when you start thinking about the the author of our totally of our story. Yes, yeah. and I think too it brings dignity to our own storytelling. Hmm. Like as we go to make work, it really is functioning in the image of God as we are. So we are image bearers, of course. And so when we make our own, when we make the stories. For people, yeah. it's it's part of f- functioning as image bearers. It mm. brings more dignity when it feels like a grind, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you you talk about the idea that art and writing are an incarnational act of faith. Mm-hmm. I think that might be relevant to what you're talking about here. Yes, um, yes. I mean, there's there's a verse. It's like you knew. Uh, it, it's something like D- David. David says, "You knew. You knew my life. They were. They were." pages in a book when there were none of them or something like that. It's like God knew all the pages of the book when there were none of them. David describes his life that way. And 
so when an artist or a writer is dealing in the realm of ideas, mm-hmm. unseen ideas, and bringing them forward, mm-hmm. that is kind of the most incarnational thing anyone can do. And that applies to like, you know, business ideas or, you know, ma- making yeah. furniture, you know, it can apply to anything, but yeah. it really is like the work of bringing something in scene, unseen to the scene world yeah. um, is also very image bearing work. Yeah. I was uh, uh, just talking to the, the last episode I recorded, which will not probably won't air for an, another few weeks um, was with the, the poet Andrew Roycroft. And we were talking about the idea that the difference between um, the, a fundamental difference between a theological view of the universe and, and uh, I'm sorry, a theistic and an atheistic view is that in a mm-hmm. theistic view, the mind gives rise to matter and in an atheistic view, matter gives rise to the mind. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? And, um, wow. and so you're, what you're talking about here is there's an idea that then takes shape in matter. Yeah. That's that's the 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 model of creation is yes. idea takes form. Yes. And um and as you say, you know, I guess that's another way of saying that that writing and art is an incarnational act of faith. Yes. Um, and I, I I just love that idea that the idea is first. Yes. And then, and, and then there are so many, as you said, it might be business, it might be hospitality, it might be beekeeping, might be gardening, but um, yeah. but the idea, one way or another, makes its way into the world as yes. a thing and not just as an idea. Well, and that's why we need to be careful, right? Because it's in the idea phase that the lies come. So like when you're in the idea phase, and we've all experienced this, it's like you get an idea, right? And then before you know it, it's like in your mind, oh, that's stupid. That'll never mm-hmm. work. No one's going to like that. You can't afford that. Blah, 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 blah. So if we can recognize, so when we're in the idea phase, if we can recognize when those like ac- accusations come, that it's really the enemy trying to keep you from doing that ar- incarnational work, you can mm-hmm. like shrug it off a little more easily, you know, yeah. like j- just, just know that I, the idea, the ideation phase is so fragile and we know that even with like pregnant women you know it's like (laughs) a fragile process we like take extra care we want to make sure that that baby is born yeah and i think our creative ideas are are the same we have to really protect our spirits in those ideation phases and know that like we're going to get attacked Mm. and uh you think that that phase is more fragile than the actual making putting it down making music Oh man, that's a great question. Maybe I don't know. I, they're fragile in their own ways, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's all. I mean, I love Kurt Thompson says this thing like, "All evil has to do is show up when something good is happening." Yeah. And so when you're making work, and when you're when you go to like, you're printing out the pages of the manuscript, you know, you're like <laughs> in the studio, it's like, well. All evil has to do in those moments is show up. It's like evil's job is so easy. Mm -hmm. But if you are aware, if you are aware and kind of a little bit vigilant about your process, you can push it off when those evil moments come. 
And I really believe it's evil. I don't think it's overstating it. Yeah. No, I I think you're right. I, I think it's I think it's helpful to think of it in those to externalize. Yes. You know, th- this is not just my I you know, this isn't just coming from inside me. Yes. Like, I mean when, when right. I when I thought I really I really had to have Nike tennis shoes when I was in junior high. I thought that was coming from deep within me. No, that was coming from outside. And then it felt like it was coming from deep within. My desire for Nike tennis shoes. Um, and by the way, we were doing just fine at Warner Robins Junior High until this guy named Pat showed up. And he's like, no, no, no. Your hierarchy of tennis shoes is all wrong. The ponies are not cool. The Nikes are cool. And we're like, we did not know this. And now we do. So now we've all got to go get Nike tennis shoes. And did you get them? I don't think I did. <laughs> and and you've been working it out ever since. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, yeah. you'll you'll like you'll like this, Jonathan. I and I think it's important for creative people in in process when the battle of the mind arrives as it inevitably will. I like to pay attention to the grammar of my thoughts. And if, okay. and if you're, and if your light is on, you're like, oh yeah. Okay. So when, when thoughts come into my mind, like you're so dumb, you're not very good. Like you're not, you're not writing great songs today. You just need to put the guitar down and walk away. It's so often in, in the you, like the pronouns yeah. are so often you. And listening to that helps me recognize that it's coming from the outside. Like it's the accuser in that unspoken subconscious way saying you, 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 you. And it really help, helps me recover my sense of myself because you're right. It does come from the outside. Yeah. So if you can like recognize the tone of voice and you can like identify the pronouns. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. I love it. It's the grammar. Just do a little, just do a little grammar exercise on your inner narrative. Like, where's it coming from? Yeah. You're not going to talk to yourself in you. And if it's a destructive thought, it's certainly not coming from God. Yeah. What about the passive voice? I wonder, I wonder if I I can't think of any times when. Yeah. Say an example of a voice in the past of of a thought in passive voice. What's an example? I mean, I guess um, uh, I will be destroyed <laughs> is, is in the passive mm. voice. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but but I, I love that idea of paying attention to the pronouns. Yeah, I mean, I think if it's I, I it's it's when it's I, the, those I thoughts actually give me helpful information and can orient me even when they're hard to accept. Like I'm afraid I don't think I can do this. Yeah. That's actually helpful to know. Yeah. Right. And I I think, I mean, uh, there's also, I'm a loser, which is, you know, (laughs) that's not helpful, but I, 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 but I I love the idea that, so just because it's in the, in the first person, here's the first person pronoun doesn't mean it's necessarily helpful, but I do think that's super helpful to think, if it's coming to me as you, yeah, um, 
I'm almost sure that's not going to be helpful. But Jonathan, um, even when it's I'm a loser, it's kind of like now I need Nike shoes. Well, <laughs> were you told for long enough that you're a loser? So now you've adopted it. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, were you told over the years, like you're a loser, you're not very good. You're this, you're that. And then you're kind of bullied into accepting it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important to know the difference between my inner critic and just outward critics that I've internalized. Yeah. Um, oh, because we all huge, have huge sense. sense of, I mean, if, if you're doing this work, if you're doing creative work, you have a sense of taste. You have a sense of, yeah. you have a sense of what's good and what's not good. But then also you, it's so easy to internalize things that aren't oh, and, taste. And so painful. Yeah. So painful. Like in a way, I mean, I, I came to songwriting a little late in life. I started in the Broadway world and oh, really? I got blasted. I got blasted when I was in a production in Miami at our, at our kind of bigger regional house. And I got blasted in the Miami Herald. Blasted. Oh my gosh. And it was really like the first crushing review I had had. Mm. And it really, I, it ruined my performance. I, I, I never fully recovered in that production because of this review. Hmm. And an older actress. Are you willing time, to say like, anything from that review that they said? Ooh, Do you remember? I'd have to Google it. I wonder if it's That's still right. there online. No worries. But this is helpful. I might not be able to, rem- I might be like healed and not remember, <laughs> like I remember how I felt and I can't remember the phrases, but it basically was like, this is the weakest part of the show. Like I kind oh. of, I kind of like, it was, it, the writer was basically like, I withstood her performance, you know, <laughs> and criticized my voice and my stage presence, all these things. And an older actress at the time was like, look, you can't, you can't read the bad reviews. And then she said, you can't read the good ones either. Mm-hmm. Like dismiss them all and just do your job. So it was like, ignore yeah. the good reviews, ignore the bad reviews. It, it gave me a thicker skin, even for myself. Like when I'm patting myself on the back and also when I'm, criticizing myself it's Mm -hmm. like ignore them both just keep going yeah that's good i love it um you know in in the same the same album as the story you've also got a song called the melody yeah you know and so in the story it's thinking of my life as a as a story and the melody it's thinking of my life as a song every part i'm i should i should sing it uh, every part oh, of my life do. is a note and a melody and a song you're singing over me. Yes. Uh, and then my heartbeat is the rhythm of the melody. Yes. Um, and um, I imagine you were consciously doing that. Like in uh, the first half of this album, we're going to think of life as a story. And the second half, we're going to think of it as as a song and applying some. Tell me about that. Um, okay. The short. That song actually had a nerdy beginning, and I'll keep it brief. I I was thinking at the time about um, the frequencies of sound. Mm. So in the animal kingdom, humans actually have a very, and I think I talked about this a little bit at Liturgy Collective where we met last year. Mm-hmm. Um in the animal kingdom, human beings actually have a real, real limited range of hearing. Uh-huh. Like that's why dogs will respond to like sounds outside of our range of hearing. Uh-huh. And uh, 
And I've gotten real into like, what are audio frequencies? Like what is ultrasonic sound? What is subsonic sound? The fact is Mm -hmm. there's a lot of noise going on that humans just can't hear. Mm -hmm. And I started to think about is part of the fall at the fall of man, did our human hearing decrease (laughs) so that we can't hear God's voice anymore? Interesting. And so I wrote the melody basically saying like all the, could all of the sounds of my life actually be factoring into this song that God is singing over me and I can't hear it. I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't actually hear it, but my life is part of that music that's occurring outside the range of human hearing and is my heartbeat, the rhythm. So it's like a fun little pop song. I love the song. Yeah. And I thought it was going to be like a big smash and it wasn't, but <laughs> I love, I love it. And it really does have kind of like nerdy, a nerdy origin from thinking about frequencies of music. Interesting. Well, that's the, the whole idea of the, music of, of, the, the music of the spheres from the ancients, you know, yes. there's this song going on that surrounds us. Yes. And we can't, we can't hear it. Well, and it actually, Jonathan, it it ties into what we're talking about because as I researched it a little bit, like audio frequencies and what they are, there's a whole, there's a whole realm of technology where like sub subsonic sounds are really destructive. And they even show like kids, like sounds that are outside the human range of hearing, but they're occurring. Huh. Um, even show like, you know, kids who are in schools where there's subsonic sounds within range, like can't learn. Really? And then ultrasonic sounds are like very useful. Like they give us ultrasounds and they help us see Uh. images and stuff like that. So it's almost like kind of ties into the unseen messages that we're getting, the unheard messages we're getting. Like, are there real subsonic messages we get from the enemy that are like destroying us over time if we don't notice like subsonic sounds also are very decaying. So if buildings are built and there's subsonic frequencies nearby, it'll like add to decay of buildings and stuff. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I could go down a whole rabbit hole, but it's real interesting. What's an example of a something that creates a subsonic sound? Like if there's um, like uh, dynamite or like, are there rumblings? Are there subsonic rumblings in the earth? Mm that can be picked up with um with the radio technology but Uh we don't hear it and then there's lots of now with our electrical world or like there's lots of hums like Mm -hmm. electrical hums that are subsonic that are in our environment so you've got like a school near like a big transmitter that's emitting a subsonic hum that you can't hear but it's shown over time to like really have a like hard effect on people I wonder what it's like to be a dog who can hear things. I mean, if you wonder, yeah. You know, are, are there are there things going on in this house that my dog is is driving my dog crazy that I don't know? I can say definitively yes. How can you say this definitively? Because it is true. Like if you brought if you brought a little like dial like a like a radio frequency dial into your house, it would register audio frequencies occurring in your house that you you can't hear. But that the dog can. Maybe. <laughs> Especially with electronics. I've also wondered what happens to a dog who's left in a house with a crock pot and they can smell it all day long and they're never going to get any of it. 
What kind of, so does your dog bark a lot? Not too much. She's, she's pretty, pretty well, but I have two and, and one doesn't see very well. So she sometimes barks at things that just, you know, she does a little extra barking just to make sure because she can't see if there's something there to bark at or not. So she she airs on the side of barking sometimes. And isn't it true? Like when your sight is limited, your hearing is augmented. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So maybe her hearing is a lot more sensitive too. Maybe that, maybe so. Well, that was a bit of a nerdy tangent. All you wanted to know about was the melody. And I went off. That's all I wanted to know. But I, I, I love the idea of the melody of, you're starting to pay attention to to the the melodies that are around, you know, be to observe it. There's a lot. There's a lot in that song about the sounds of a city. Yes. Or a song too. Yes. And, uh, yeah. And God, God's the great composer. So maybe, maybe God knows how all the notes fit together. Like to us, it's just like disparate sounds, but yeah. God's actually working out a melody and maybe one day we'll hear how it all goes together. Yeah. I like our chances. I do too. All right. Let me, uh, let me end with my typical ending question. Uh, who are the writers who make you want to write Melanie? And you can also include musicians if you're so inclined. We'll make an exception <laughs> in your case. I was just asked this question recently. I think the writer that has impacted me most is um, the music writer who's impacted me most is Stephen Sondheim. He's uh-huh. a theater writer. Yeah. And you know, for your listeners, they might know him from like more modern musicals like Into the Woods. And, you know, he, he was also the lyricist for West Side Story. Mm-hmm. And I he went back that far. Yes. And I think that's right. Well, if that's not right, someone's going to write, write me a strongly worded letter. Anyway, yeah. he just taught me a lot about rhyming. Mm-hmm. And rhyming is really important to me in songwriting and like, unexpected rhymes. Mm -hmm. I think Stephen Sondheim is excellent at that. And so I think in, in songs, I'm, I'm kind of practical. I get super obsessed with rhymes and, and hope to, um, kind of like accomplish unexpected rhymes at the ends Mm -hmm. of lyric lines and also within Mm -hmm. that's really always kind of my goal. Yeah. Well, I (laughs) I don't know if I'm I'm successful at it. What? I, I did notice that. I have noticed that in your lyrics. So, so far, so good. Keep it up, Melanie. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, anybody else? Any other writers? Or Sondheim, you're... And I did Google it. You're right. He he wrote the lyricist for persons. Okay, I was <laughs> sure. And then you said that. I was like, oh my gosh, was I wrong? Um, <laughs> Stephen Sondheim, you know, there's, there's melody. This is kind of out of the language sphere, but it's like there's melody writers I've really studied and loved. Like John Denver is one. Yeah. Like, I really... Uh, um, kind of the singers of the seventies. I'm not a child of the seventies, but I love that music. Like uh, Joan Collins, like John Denver, these very kind of pu- a lot of purity in the voice mm-hmm. and purity in the melodies yeah. where they just kind of like wrap you up and you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> um, those writers really impact me. And then I think anyone who just has a real economical way of writing, like doesn't, doesn't overly describe <laughs> um, yeah. people who just keep things simple. Yeah. But deliver a whole thought in a simple way. Mm-hmm. Man, when I come across that, that's the stuff. Yeah. That is the stuff. And a, a lot of what drives me in writing songs is I, 
I don't enjoy songs where I have no idea what's going on. Mm. Some people love that. You know, they love the mystery. Like, yeah. you know, they, they kind of have no idea what the singer's writing about, but they kind of love the vagueness. Yeah. I find that unconsoling. I don't like that. Even so, like Bohemian Rhapsody? Surely you like that song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a great, it's a group. I mean, gosh. It's actually an interesting example because, I mean, I love the performance and the soaring vocals and everything. But, yeah, that's an example of a song I can't use in my life. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I can't use it. And so in anyone who's able to, like, say complex things in, in a simple way, I'm just all about it. And I hope to more and more be able to do that. Yeah. Well, Melanie, thank you for the work you've done in accomplishing even that. I mean, addressing things like you know nerdy musical spheres type stuff in very accessible ways so so thanks and thanks for being here on the habit podcast thanks for having me jonathan the habit podcast is brought to you by the rabbit room where art nourishes community and community nourishes art to check out more of our podcasts visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.